Welcome to the Carl Bart Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle. And today is a special episode. We actually have two guests on the same episode. I've never done this before, so um, patience, please. <laughs> um, but the episode it also isn't really about Carl Bart, um, but there is plenty of overlap there. Um, so we thought that this would interest listeners, and so I'm sure the listeners will, you, you guys will enjoy it. But I want to introduce um, who will be joining me today first. Uh, my first guest is Dr. Eleonora Hoff. Um, Dr. Hoff has her PhD in missiology from the Protestant Theological University in Amsterdam and is minister of the United Protestant Church in Belgium. And I also have here with me Dr. Colin Cornell. Dr. Cornell has a PhD from Emory University in Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament, and is a visiting professor of biblical studies at the School of Theology at the University of the South. Colin, Eleonora, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting us. Much Thanks appreciated. Us. Yeah, definitely. Um, I should mention, I guess, um, that Colin, you reached out first just to kind of line this up. I'm really excited, but you are both the translators of K.H. Muscoda's work Biblical ABCs, The Basics of Christian Resistance. Um, and there was a conference really recently by the same name that kind of uh, helped launch this title. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that that conference? Sure, I can take a, a pass at that, Corey. Yeah. Uh, thanks again so much for, for having us on here. And uh, yeah, the conference was just about... Um, as, uh, as grand a rollout for a translated uh, work of theology as one could possibly hope for. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a joint effort of the Protestant uh, Theological University of your own university. Aberdeen was a, a partner in, the, in organizing it and especially your advisor, Phil Ziegler, um, as well as the Miskota Foundation. So it took place across two days in November uh, and it invited a number of, uh, especially uh, English-speaking, but not only English-speaking scholars to respond to this event of the book's publication in English. Uh, and so it was a great time. I learned a lot, uh, even as somebody who spent quite a bit of time with the translation. Mm -hmm. It was a really wonderful event because um, we just not only wanted to launch the book and give information about how the book, um, about the content of the book, but we also wanted to have a constructive theological conference. So many of the authors that we um, asked actually took Ms. Gotta a step further and um, took him as a dialogue partner in their own um, systematic theological work. And that was really what we um, envisioned for him because we don't see the book just as a historical document. We also see it as a living and breathing text for today and as a helpful conversation partner for doing theology. That's great. Yeah. And we should add also, um, one, one of the exciting things about having this conversation is that it's sort of like an introduction into the, uh, the conference talks themselves through working with Colin and Eleonora and my advisor, Phil Ziegler, um, was actually able to get access to the audio from those uh, conference talks, and we'll also be putting them on the podcast feed. So um, <laughs> yeah, this will be kind of episode one bonus episode, and there will be quite a few more. Um, and I, hopefully we'll put them out right around the same time. So, uh, so stay tuned for that. Um, but enough about the conference, let's actually get into learning about um, KH Muscota. I wanted to ask for people who are not familiar with him at all. Um, is there, could you provide maybe like 
a brief biography. Who was he? When did he live? I guess the context that he lived in when he was writing that sort of thing. Colin, let's go. Let's go to you for that. Yeah. So uh, a couple things, first of all, just to remember about Niskota, and I'm going to be keeping in mind um, uh, your uh, podcast uh, listening audience, especially uh, its its interest in Bart, probably a few others who migrated over from from Bonhoeffer as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, It Niskote shares a lot of context with them. Of course, he is Dutch, so that makes an immense difference in terms of situation uh, and the way that the rise of National Socialism and the war played out immensely different from their context. But uh, in a lot of other ways, a shared theological milieu with them. So Miskota was, uh, like Karl Barth, a pastor. Like Karl Barth, he was called the Red Pastor in his first pastorage, his first assignment. Uh, And... um, he was also, like them, uh, received sort of a, a really excellent theological training. Uh, so pastor, a theologian, someone who was already writing uh, prolifically, even in his pastoral uh, calling. He achieved a doctorate uh, from the University of Koningen. Uh, and he was also uh, an, uh, a very vocal opponent uh, of National Socialism from its very first moments of uh, ascendance in the Netherlands. Uh, so those are just a few of the primary facts uh, to remember about him. Pastor, theologian, anti-fascist. He was born in 1894. He died in 1976. Um, so that means he was uh, only 20 when World War I began. Uh, and uh, Jimmy Carter was the president of the U.S. in the same year that he passed away. Um, yeah. What a life. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's not to like there with that, those brief descriptions of pastor, theologian, not Nazi, um, and anti-fascism. Um, yeah, it's, it's exciting um, to, to be able to, to talk about him and kind of get to know more. I, I recently read the book, um, sort of getting ready for this and loved it. And I, I found there was obviously so much over, it felt very uh, Bartian language. Uh, it mm-hmm. felt like I was reading a, a kind of a, a art book. I'm sure they don't agree on everything, but um, yeah. Anyway, I, also, like you said, there is some overlap with Bart. And Eleanor has mentioned before we hopped on that she has some anecdotes about uh, about Bart and, and Mascota. So I'm mm-hmm. on pins and needles waiting to hear about these stories. So uh, take it away. Um, well, thank you. Um, well, I think the most important way that we can um, characterize Miskota is by the words of um, Bart himself. They had um, a long-standing friendship, and Bart called Miskota the poet and seer among my friends. And coming from Bart, that is very high praise. And um, he was called that because uh, Miskota has a very high um, artist artistic uh, sensibility, and he was very much involved with. Um, literature, both classic and um, contemporary literature, and he actually educated Bart on several occasions on contemporary literature, and um, Bart really appreciated having somebody like Miskota in his life. Mm-hmm. So they had um they had a friendship, but that friendship did not come about very naturally. Um, um, Miskota read the Römer brief pretty early. Um, we can actually date it to the exact day, February 1st, 1923. And he wrote in his diary that um, it's um, in some places, it's, it's wonderful. It's sometimes even um, genius. 
um, words. He also wrote and it's um, wildly annoying to him because it has um, the courage to um, relativize all values. So his first reading of the letter was not very, not always very positive, one would say. So what do you do when you read something that you don't really agree with? Well, obviously you just write to the author and you express that you don't agree with it. So that's exactly what he did. So he wrote to Bart, he told him that he was missing uh, mysticism and an ethical position into it. Um, so yeah, I was just reading that and was like, wow, it's quite something to just actually um, write to Bart himself and tell him that um, there are certain aspects lacking of what, what one could say is like the most important theological work of the whole 21st um, century. So, but that's exactly what he did. Um, he also wrote another letter to Barth um, detailing that he did not use enough of um, Kohlbrugge in his, um, in his theological work, uh, which is kind of like a moot point because Barth was very well aware of the theology of Kohlbrugge and actually um, felt pretty, felt a lot of affinity to Kohlbrugge. So, but still, Ms. Kota felt that he should um, take it upon him to let Bart know that there should be more of Kohlbrugge in his work. And then finally, there is another critical letter that Ms. Kota wrote to Bart, and that concerns the start of the church dogmatics. Um, and he actually had the audacity to write to Bart that he is forsaking his calling as a prophet by writing um, a church dogmatic. So that's quite some, quite interesting choice of words. So he refers to Dostoevsky and he says that, um, that Bart should actually be more like Ivan Karamazov and um, should take up this calling as, as a prophet. Um, and Bart responds um, with some detailed um, analysis of Dostoevsky, so um, Bart does not think that he's um, that the calling out is um, warranted, of course. So those are the, the early um, letters that uh, Miss Cotte is writing to Bart, but there is um, a shift in how Miss Cotte perceives Bart, and we could say like more or less around um, 1934. Um, Miss Kotte becomes actually the, the biggest um, champion of bars in the Netherlands. And um, in his own work, he um, is starting to appreciate Bart more. And he's also very concerned, obviously, for the rise of national socialism. And he sees a lot of affinity in, in bars. And he also makes more or less conscious the decision to not take on bars um, in public anymore, but just he thinks the work of Bart is so important it should be known in the Netherlands. And that's why he's um, um, actually just like, okay, well, Bart should be known in the Netherlands. Okay, what are we gonna do? We're gonna get Bart to the Netherlands so yeah. people can actually get acquainted with him. So that's exactly what he's, what he's doing in 1935. Uh, Miss Kotte arranged for Bart to come to um, University City of Utrecht and Bart is giving a couple of lectures about the Apostolic Confession. 
Um, and Ms. Kolte takes it upon himself to translate those lectures and to annotate them and to put them in, um, in a book. So that's, um, that's a very practical way that um, Barth is, oh, that Ms. Kolte is introducing Barth. And then in 1939, um, Barth is paying another visit to the Netherlands. And that's um, obviously just one year before the war, the invasion of um, Nazi Germany would be in the Netherlands. So the political situation is very, very tense already at the moment. And um, Barth is scheduled to give a couple of lectures, but the, um, the specter of um, national socialism is already looming large. So the police is already very involved with, um, with visits and they want to know in advance what he's going to, to say if he's not gonna talk about politics too much. And um, the meeting in Amsterdam is actually um, canceled because the police wanted to know what he was saying in advance and they thought it was too political. So he was not allowed to, um, to continue the meeting. And, um, but the, the visits of Barth in 1939 um, stirred up a lot of controversy in Netherlands, not just because of the um, skirmish with the police, but also because of the content, because Barth, as we know, it was um, um, not in favor of um, infant baptism and Miss Cotter was, was very much in favor. So, that also led to quite some controversy between the two of them. But yeah, I think it's important to stress that Ms. Um, Kotte was very influential in um, getting Barth um, both in person and in his writings in, um, to the Netherlands. That's great. I, I find it so interesting to um, look at these sort of uh, well, I guess I, I'm really interested in Bonhoeffer and Barth now. Now, Ms. Kotte, these people who grow into these larger than life theological figures that resist these these massive massive regimes and uh, do all these brave things and I, I'm always really interested in how they got there like the, what was the pathway so do we know what um, sort of what made Muscota choose the pathway of, of theology of being a pastor and what led to the writing of this book in particular like what was the context around? Um, okay, I need to write biblical ABCs. Who's it for? That sort of thing. In some ways, uh, and this is acknowledged uh, by folks who study Miskota intensively, uh, it, it's somewhat of a surprise that he ended up as harsh and principled a critic of national socialism as he was, uh, simply because, uh, as Eleonora mentioned, temperamentally, uh, there was probably much in the kind of um, earthy, uh, back to the land, uh, people, hearth and home, blood and soil uh, ethos that otherwise would have, I think, attracted someone like Miskota. And he himself acknowledged uh, in his wartime work that the Nazis banned, they outlawed it as soon as it came out. So it sold out almost immediately, but still <laughs> they, they uh, prohibited it. Um, Edda and Torah, uh, he, he says of himself that he is a pagan. Uh, and of course, he thought that was true of kind of uh, all Christians, uh, excepting those who are, um, you know, from uh, Jewish uh, heritage. But he, he said that we're all converted pagans. But he meant that especially in, in, of himself. Um, uh, so in some ways, a surprise that he would have ended up as, a, as such a critic uh, of national socialism. He even uh, debated a bona fide uh, Nazi pastor uh, in the 1930s. Um, 
and uh, really wanted for uh, his church to make a more principled stand, uh, which they did not. Um, but how did he end up uh, as such, as such a critic? Um, I think I, I, I myself would point to maybe two factors. One being his longstanding engagement with contemporary Jewish thinkers and theologians. Mm -hmm. He wrote his dissertation, uh, um, which I've actually just started uh, reading myself, um, on uh, these figures who were, I think, then relatively unknown among Christians. People like Max Brot, Franz Rosenzweig has some fame and recognition, um, Leo Bake, Franz Kafka, all these uh, sort of uh, figures. Um, and uh, it was from them that he learned to understand Judaism as not just sort of a precursor uh, to Christianity, um, mm -hmm. but rather as a, a, a sort of self-standing, um, independent religion, practice, community with, with its own integrity, uh, religiously as well. Um, and so that was an, that's an important factor, is, is sort of his study of contemporary Jewish thinkers, philosophers, theologians. Um, and the second is actually the interception uh, of Karl Barth, uh, which I think only reinforced some momentum that Miskota already had back towards scripture and towards Hebrew scripture in particular. Um, he said of uh, Karl Barth's, uh, I think, I think two, one, um, that he thought it was kind of a, it, it really did a, an excellent job expositing the Israelite idiom. Um, and he thought it was kind of a beginning to dogmatics in an Israelite idiom. Um, but at any rate, he had kind of an, a, a, an early uh, love for the Old Testament. Kolbrucha, um, that Elinor, as I mentioned, is part of that. But Bart only lent that yet more kind of force uh, and articulation. That's great. Um, before we get into sort of the contents of the book, I wanted to hear more about uh, about the, the, both of you, um, how you got involved in this. Um, so I'll start first with just asking you, Eleonora, um, how did you discover Muscota? Um, Well, thank you. That's a wonderful question. Um, I think that he was always there in a certain sense in my theological environment where I grew up. Um, I grew up in an environment where there was a lot of interest in Bible translation. Um, I actually have a master's in Bible translation, so it's really um, an interest of mine um, with a very heavy emphasis on um, translating the, um, the biblical idiom into um, into Dutch. So that means that I was familiar with the um, so-called um, loosely defined Amsterdam School of Theology and Ms. Kulte can be seen as an inspirator to that approach to, um, to translation. So he was always um, there in a certain sense, but um, I was not very acquainted with him. At first, his language is also pretty Baroque to read, so I didn't read, read that much from, from him, but Around the time that I um, defended my PhD defense, um, the biography came out of um, his, his life. And that's a very well-written, accessible book. And I happened to be um, gifted a copy for my PhD defense. So I, I read it in like, um, just like one week. I was very, very fascinated. And then I was like, okay, my PhD research is finished. I actually want to return to my first love as is. Um, translation, tra translation theory. Um, so I decided to write um, a short paper on um, Miskolta Biblical ABC's um, resistance and translation for a conference at my 
um, university put out and I upload that to academia.edu and Colin happened to read that and then he approached me and actually from there on our story is our story together starts. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I found it really interesting as I was preparing for the interview, kind of getting the biographies together. I was like a PhD in missiology and a PhD in Hebrew. <laughs> um, translate 20th century Dutch theologian. <laughs> it was like, how did that come together? So that's cool. That's <laughs> well, there's cool. actually like a lot of divergence. Um, I mean, convergence in our stories because we both happen to be almost at the same time in Nepal working um, in viral translation as well. So, wow. yeah, that's shared interest in translation that is um, certainly there. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. great. Yeah, Colin, how, how did you discover Miskata? Well, I mean, so as Eleanor has just um, mentioned, my first love, I don't think I've ever heard you describe it quite that way before, Eleanor, too, but I, I've actually said those very words myself to others in describing my own trajectory that my first love was Bible translation and translation theory specifically. I even entertained going to grad school for translation theory. That's a thing one can do. Um, but yes, we were both there uh, in Nepal working as uh, translation consultants for Bible translation projects. Um, and uh, both of us then returned uh, for further education once we returned to our respective homes. Um, I went to Princeton Seminary for a uh, Master of Divinity. Did you, did you both meet while you're in Nepal or were you? No, in just no, missed each other by a couple of months. Oh, Many cool. strange, strange, uh, yeah, all near crossings. Um, we have the same birthday too, uh, wow. very, very strange. Um, but yeah, so uh, we did miss each other, but knew some common people there. Uh, who know both of us. Um, but yeah, so I went back to Princeton Seminary in the US, um, mostly on the strength of their Old Testament faculty. I wasn't particularly uh, interested in the specific theological strengths um, of Princeton Seminary, but I sort of assumed while I was there that I would uh, just uh, really drink up what was available, and that is Karl Barth and dialectical <laughs> theology more broadly. So learned and read about Bart and, and Bonhoeffer and, and all their kind of theological accomplices. Um, and as part of that, uh, I was in touch with a number of scholars who study uh, biblical theology, Brevard Childs uh, in particular, mm -hmm. as someone who I was very interested in, who is trying to uh, honor the achievements of historical criticism while also maintaining uh, a sort of receptivity towards scripture as the word of God. And it was through some people involved with Child's legacy that Miskota was recommended uh, to me. Um, that was as early as 2013. But uh, I didn't return to Miskota until, like Eleanor has said, something like 2016, 2017. Uh, and it was really because of events uh, in the US during that time that I was looking for someone who was deeply rooted uh, in Hebrew scripture, who was somehow in the orbit uh, theologically of mm -hmm. Bart and Bonhoeffer and all that crew, uh, and who also raised a more sharply critical, dissident kind of theological voice. And so I happened on Eleonora's paper, was very intrigued uh, to be reacquainted with this figure, Miskota, and Kind of the story went from there, reached out to her. She happened to be in Chattanooga, where I now live, um, <laughs> and, which was just up the road from, from me, practically, in Atlanta. Mm. Um, and so uh, we, we met for the first time in person in 
Chattanooga uh, in, I guess, would have been 2017. Mm -hmm. Wow. And they were like, okay, well, let's just actually do it. Let's <laughs> just translate the biblical ABCs. And it's not been translated in English before. It's been translated in a host of other languages, most um, importantly German, I would say. And we were just like, well, it's just there. It's just like lying bare. It's just like, why is it not translated? It's like obviously very important. And there's a um yeah it's like in so many languages it's, it's available and people just need to engage with it in yeah. english as well and we also just love translating so we are kind of like okay well if we're not translating the bible then we might as well translate something else that's like really challenging and difficult but also important so basically <laughs> that's kind of like the rationale before it but when you translate, um, you really go through the text in such a new and a deep way. And it had really impacted my own theological way of thinking. And so I'm very happy that we chose a text that's actually really worth it to be so well acquainted with. Yeah, I am too. I am too. And I, I was going to say, I know, uh, Corey, because I'm, I'm a kind of a super fan of your podcast. I had to train for a marathon uh, this past year and uh, I used my practice sessions um, to just sort of catch up uh, on, on, your, on the podcast. So thanks for all, all your work on that. But I know because of them, uh, the way that you approached um, studying Bonhoeffer, which is to read your way through his corpus. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're probably doing something similar now uh, with, with Carl. Yeah. Um, and that was my own approach with Miskot. It was to try to read whatever I could, could lay hold of, uh, very little in English, somewhat in German, and then to try to sort of flex my uh, very incipient Dutch muscles as much as I could. Uh, and so I actually saw uh, this translation project not only as, as a sort of service to the theological community um, and a sort of particular uh, charged political moment in the life of the church, but also uh, for me as a way to learn more and learn thoroughly about this, this theologian whom I, I thought might be important. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's great. Um, nice. What were some of the challenges that you faced when translating it? Um, like, Colin, did you know Dutch before you got into this or was it? Um, I mean, so biblical scholars sort of um, play around with languages that we don't really know, just because it's sort of like there's somebody, there's an article that you really, really need to understand. And so you can sort of try to muscle your way through it. Um, so I had sort of very occasionally tried to read Dutch things before, but not in any sort of sustained way like this. So no, I did, <laughs> which made our made our proposal to try to translate this doubly uh, audacious, uh, maybe too, too much so. Um, yeah, that it, because I didn't know Dutch when we started. Wow, <laughs> that that's crazy. <laughs> um, actually, actually though, and, and Eleonora maybe can say more about this. Our we really came to appreciate our process. You asked about some of the challenges mm -hmm. we faced, um, and there's you know of course just the challenge of of Dutch to English, the differences of syntax, vocabulary, Miskota's dated language, his very very baroque and complicated. Uh, sort of <laughs> prose style, mm -hmm. um, but uh, but also uh, our process was really this push and pull between a, a Dutch native speaker and sort of uh, me on the English language uh, target language side. But that ended up being really um, productive, really really I think helpful, uh, and meant that we vetted you know every single paragraph and sentence mm -hmm. kind of on both those both those levels. Um, fidelity to the way the Dutch runs and also hopefully, and you could maybe vouch for this or not, Corey, but intelligibility uh, on the English side. Yeah, it was great. 
It was great. It was a lot more, um, I mean, I, I guess it's written simply. It seems to be for sort of a lay person to grab hold of. Obviously, it's the ABCs. Um, but you hop in and it's just like, you know, little sentences, little points that just kind of stick with you the whole way through as you go. And I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, let, let's start with, with Eleanor, we'll get into the book a little bit. Um, what specifically about this book um, excites you? Um, wh- why this one? What is uh, what is Miskota uh, saying that's, that's interesting? Um, for me, it's the, um, um, going back to the fundamentals and reading the foundational words of um, the Hebrew Bible. And also the radical um, agnosticism, you might say, that we don't know who God is yet. So we should not approach God with all our attributes like all-knowing, omnipresent, etc., etc. So we actually have no clue yet if we actually have a God that's all-knowing, omnipresent, whatever. We can only know who God is if we actually go read the Bible and see how God is revealed in that. And then we actually discover that God is not described with all those attributes that are usually um, attributed to God um, throughout the whole course of um, theology and philosophy. And we find a very different God. We find a very human God and we find a God that's actually small in a sense and that is um, concerned with um with humans and that's um it's a god who can um suffer with us as well so we find a very very different god and we find a god that has a name that is also a very important point for miss god has a name and um so god is not some kind of like impersonal um, first mover or impersonal principle god is actually revealed with um with god's name and for me that's kind of like very, yeah it has become very foundational because that is god that we love and we serve it is this very god this very particular god that is revealed to us and not some kind of abstract principle and that for me is also a basic basic where you can actually build like a whole church ministry on because um, there are so many misconceptions about who God is and people that I meet, there's like, oh, I don't believe in God because how can God um, have all this suffering going on? Why is he not doing anything? And if God's really almighty and all-powerful and why is everything still so bad? Well, uh, you know, kind of like mm-hmm. just, um, and then I'm just like, usually, well, I don't really believe in that God either. And then people are just like, kind of like mind blown. But yeah, for me, it's very helpful to, not believe in the kind of like idea about god of like the the man in this on the cloud in the sky that's out there you know like i absolutely don't um subscribe to the to the general idea in our culture about who god is i subscribe to the idea of the gods that we find in the hebrew bible so that's for me is very important as well um as a minister and then obviously there's also a very critical stance in Miskolta that is um, because God because God is holy. God is the one who is holy and God makes people or things or places holy. So that means that nothing has like this, um, this holiness in and of itself. So that also means that, um, that the blood and the soil are not holy. The um, fecundity, the, the will of man, it's just like all not holy. So that's, it's just only holy if it's made holy 
mm-hmm. by God. It's not in of itself um, holy. So that actually makes it really, really easy to be very critical of the status quo because there's just only God is holy. And that also kind of translates into um, sexual ethics, I would say, because it really makes it so much easier to be so critical of all the narrow boxes that humans have devised when it comes to um, sexuality and relationships. And um, yeah, I definitely think that's this whole idea of like uh, um, the nuclear family is kind of like an idea that has become way too holy for way too many people. And I don't really think that a nuclear family is a very biblical idea in the first place. And especially in the Hebrew Bible, there is not that many nuclear families in there anyway. So yeah, it helps just to have a pretty critical perspective. And actually, it also helps me to queer my theology, I would say because just God is holy. So we can just like um, relativize all our other ideas about um, the, all the holy houses, as, as we say in Dutch. Got it. Well, thank you for I would, that. I, I would have said, Corey, in terms of where, what's energizing or exciting was your question about both on the positive side and this kind of critical side. Uh, on the positive side, I think I was already familiar because of my uh, the ambient kind of exposure to uh, Bart and Bonhoeffer and all that with words. And maybe this is what you meant, what you meant when you mentioned kind of how there's a certain familiarity with the, the air of biblical ABCs for you, mm-hmm. but, but concepts like the eventfulness of mm-hmm. revelation of yeah, God's self-disclosure exactly. yeah. witness, uh, you know, some of these kind of core animating concepts, I was already familiar with them, but on the positive side, what biblical ABCs uh, offered to me is a really urgent, thoroughgoing emphasis on that concreteness of God. And that's, that's what Eleonora is getting at too, it, um, but in a really exciting, dynamic way for me. So this book really emphasizing the particularity of just how God shows the divine self and shows up in human life and, and affairs. Um, and, and also too, as far as that eventfulness goes, how there's never a kind of completion to Christian life, to discipleship, to anti-fascism, that it's something that one must always be renewed in. And there's a fresh kind of moment of encounter that one must be open to and on the watch for. So that's the positive kind of contribution that I find exciting. And then also, um, I didn't necessarily expect this in the same way. So I was already kind of familiar with event and witness and, and, and all that uh, kind of discourse, but the, the kind of critical, the dissident, uh, movement in Miskota's thought, which especially happens in biblical ABCs towards the end of the book. And I wonder if that's why the Nazis didn't actually um, catch it uh, as Miskota feared because they didn't read very far into it. (laughs) But in the latter chapters is where Miskota describes God as say a grand sort of saboteur. Mm -hmm. That God is the one Mm -hmm. who interrupts the natural uh, ambient default status quo manner of operating. Uh, and that we too, as, as Christians, are called in following this particular saboteur God um, to uh, unbelieving. And that's maybe what I think Eleanor is getting at with this sort of agnosticism is an active practice of kind of uh, rejecting what's given to you, the kind of pre-givens of our society and culture, even our Christian culture, 
um, to really make sure that we're measuring everything by God's very specific self-disclosure uh, in and through Hebrew scripture, in particular for Miskota. That's great. Um, oh, um, circle back to what you're saying about um, sabotage, God as the saboteur, because that is the instance in the book that is um, the most openly um, anti-Nazism, um, because the word um, sabotage was used by his good friends, um, Jan Koopmans, and he's saying that um, we are Christians first, Dutch second, and that is obviously a very open criticism of national socialism and that book was actually reviewed so the book that his friend wrote was reviewed by um, the Dutch SS and there he was called Copans was called um, a dangerous saboteur so this is like for those in the know this is like a very direct reference so by by calling God a saboteur it's in a positive way it's a very dangerous move that Miss Gotha actually makes but it was um, apparently not noticed by um, by the censorship at that very moment, but it's definitely um, a very important moment in the book that God is called a saboteur. Yeah, I think they were just asleep at the wheel. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> definitely. Wow. Uh, well, this has been great. Thank you so much just for taking the time to do this. I do have one fun question to ask you. I ask everyone who is a guest on the podcast before we wrap up, and that is the desert island question. Um, so this is the BART podcast. You both mentioned that you're familiar with BART, so I will ask you still on, on BART. Um, so the idea is you're trapped on a desert island. Um, you get one book by, bon by BART, almost said Bonhoeffer, <laughs> one book by Karl BART, one book about Karl BART, so um, a sec secondary and a primary source. Uh, which two books are you taking and why? You, you both can... Uh, work together on this uh, and come up with two total or, or provide for, I'm just looking for book recommendations. Mm, um, I think for my uh, Carl Bart book to take with me, I'm kind of, kind of basic in this way. Um, uh, I probably would uh, go with uh, four one, maybe um, okay. the way of the sun with the far country and all that. Uh, so not, not very original on, on that or, uh, sort of primary source front. Secondary source is tougher. Um, I myself continue to learn from and wrestle with um, Tom Gregg's book uh, on, what is it? Theology Against Religion. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's one that's made relevant to some of your, your own oh, yeah. theological it, questions. He'll be interviewed uh, soon, surely. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's, that book uh, is one that I think has a lot of um, proximity to, to some of what Miskota is up to. Uh, so maybe throw, throw a bone to your Bonhoeffer listeners who've migrated over. Yeah. I think that Miskota's project is in a lot of ways kind of a parallel in certain ways. He's way more Calvinistically inflected than Bonhoeffer, but uh, to what Bonhoeffer is doing, uh, drawing for, especially, especially from Old Testament mm -hmm. uh, in this kind of anti-religious direction. Uh, so anyways, but that's a book that I learned from, and I think it's relevant for, for Kalbart uh, studies for sure. When you describe uh, uh, the saboteur, it, it immediately rang bells for Bonhoeffer, just as him referring to God as uh, as Jesus as like the dis the disruptor, like yeah, he's constantly disrupting, um, which again doesn't sound like he keeps the peace very often, which I don't think would go over well with national socialists. Um, right, right. Anyway, right. Uh, Eleonora, what about you? Do you have a, any any go to books? 
Um, yeah, um, I would actually go with the very first one that I actually um, read when I was still a um, college student. Um, it's called um, What is Evangelical Theology? At least in Dutch, What is Evangelische Theologie? And in German, it's um, Einführung in die Evangelische Theologie from 1962. But I actually don't really know um, how it's translated into I have, English. Uh, I was listening to it today on a run, like, 30 minutes before I hopped on with you. It's just called, oh, really? I think it's just called Evangelical Theology and Introduction. Um, it's, yeah. from, okay, it's from okay, the yeah, tour yeah, in America, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That well, that's, that's for me kind of was like a, the starting point because also um, kind of like an agenda for theology, but also very much an engaged agenda for what you are yourself as a theologian. And that means that you're primarily a theologian of the um, the good news and that should be central in who you are and what mm. what what you stand for so that for me is kind of like a, the foundation and whenever I, I read it i'm always very much inspired to actually be that kind of um theologian so so yeah for me that's um, pretty foundational work i would say um and as for a secondary literature i don't have anything on top of my head at a, at the moment so if i would really be banned to an island i would do my research first <laughs> but i'm very interested in everything that's um that's feminist um critique and feminist readings of carbart and there are some excellent works out there so i definitely take one of those that's yeah, great faith. Faye Bodley uh, D'Angelo being one, I think, that you and I, Eleonora, have talked a bit about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, that's, that's great. Thank you so much just for, for your time today. Again, the book for the listeners is Biblical ABCs, The Basics of Christian Resistance by K.H. Muscata. Um, you will also, listeners, see in the podcast feed, there'll probably be several right after this episode. Um, and you can just work your way through and kind of pick and choose. It should be all of the uh, the conference talks. But uh, anyway, again, I really, really appreciate um, your willingness to come and participate and, and kind of take me to school on all things Muscata. <laughs> Thank you, Corey. Yeah, definitely. All right. We'll be in touch soon. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carl Bart Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review in your podcast app. It will help others find the show. And if you have any feedback or questions, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. The handle is at Bart Podcast. That's all for me now. I'm excited to keep learning with you all. And I appreciate you listening. See you next time.